Hi guys, and welcome to episode 33 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. Now, this is a special episode. So first off, we are doing a roundup of the best of season two of the Road CC podcast, just ahead of our late summer break. Don't worry, we'll be back mid to late September. So the first thing is the segment that we did on the fake news that was surrounding a lot of the changes to the highway code. So this was a group discussion that Ryan, Jack, myself and Simon had um, a couple of months ago. It was really interesting. Um, Secondly, we have the famous Chris Boardman interview that we managed to get an exclusive of just after he was announced as the new active travel commissioner for the UK. Amazing episode, best one this season, in my opinion. Um, Absolutely fantastic speaker. And then we also have a discussion that myself, Jack Mildred and Stephen May of Knapp e-bikes or Knapp, sorry, e-bikes, where we discussed everything around the cycling industry, not necessarily catering very well to larger people. And then we also have a really interesting interview with Lawrence Hunter, who is the VP of insurance at Lacquer. So Lawrence knows so much about the general cycling industry and specifically around what we're seeing within it from kind of an insurance perspective. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. We will be returning in mid to late September. So watch out for us appearing again in your feeds. We're going to be doing some serious planning. We've got some really exciting things lined up already and I can't wait to share them with you guys when we get back. So without further ado, here is episode 32 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. So first up, from episode 18 of the podcast, this was where we had a really interesting discussion around why there was so much fake news and hysteria around these changes to the highway code. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting one you say about you know being surprised by the vitriol, because I think when you look at where a lot of it comes from, it's not actually not surprising, uh, you know, and, and the kind of even the way the discussion is framed and centered. And the kind of one that springs to mind is uh, for, for, for one of our articles, I had to watch 20 minutes of GB news, uh, uh, which I'll never get back. And it was Darren Grimes news segment, the, the Geordie uh, conservative provocateur. Uh, and he, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a really interesting program to see how programs like that shouldn't be made. And uh, it would surprise, would basically kind of show that what kind of direction a lot of the commentators on the highway code are going is just before his segment on the highway code, he had a debate with two history students about Winston Churchill, right? And the debate had the two students uh, basically be a very balanced one saying, uh, oh, Churchill did many great things, but that shouldn't hide that he also did many terrible things. And the other student saying, Churchill did many terrible things, but that shouldn't hide that he did many great things. But Grimes couldn't cope with that. He, he had to make it like a like a really fierce debate. He couldn't cope with like balanced discussion. And that kind of 
fed into the highway code segment uh where he it was part of a segment called scrap reform or keep so he was you know and apparently this is going to be a regular thing on his show uh on gb news and he got howard cox with the founder of fairfield uk on who you know did his usual spiel of saying it's uh you know a cyclist charter uh it's for lunatics it's going to cause chaos on the road all that kind of thing but even he at the end when uh, Grimes raised three paddles like he was on Strictly Come Dancing, you know, and, and tried to get uh, <laughs> and tried to get Cox to pick Reform, Scrap, or Keep. Even Cox said uh, probably somewhere between Reform and Scrap. And then Grimes <laughs> went, no, 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 definitely Scrap. It has to be Scrap. I'm making the decision. And it's just like that kind of simplif- simplification of the whole debate is probably what we've seen across, you know, with the Daily Mail, even with the Times, which obviously, you know, has kind of led a bit of a campaign against uh, the, the changes of the code calling for cyclists to be insured. And uh, Simon pointed out in one of the articles we ran 10 years basically to the day since, you know, they lost the CFR cyclist campaign. Uh, so it, it is interesting how the direction of uh, the debate has gone. Uh, what I've found particularly discouraging is the amount of people, the number of people who should know better making things up so i mean a particular somebody who has been particularly guilty of that has been mike graham the talk the loudmouth talk show host who was on good morning britain and decided to tell everybody that people who are cycling their bikes on roundabouts have priority over everybody else which then meant that he he seemed to think that that meant that if you were right, if you were going round a roundabout and there was a cyclist, you had to just stop on. wherever you were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've no. That's what I mean. I've, I've heard his show and what he thinks about cycling, and I, I think to be honest, it's just it's what people want, expect, and want from him, and he's just gone down that route. Uh, he's get probably getting paid pretty handsomely for it, so that's it's. Well, I wouldn't say it's fair enough, but that's that's what he's chosen to to do. But um, even someone like that, like, is it all their fault? Because he has, like, if he knew that wasn't true, would he still be saying it? But he has. That's how he interpreted it. Like, my, I don't think there was any malice in my dad saying, "Oh, so the the highway code changes mean that you can ride another road now." I'm like, well, no, it doesn't. And and I th- I don't know. Do, do they do? Does everyone just need a good talking to or a good advertising the- campaign from the government? I think it's the way a lot of it's been reported because the, you know, riding in primary position, for instance, and it's not in the middle of the road, it's, you know, in you know, taking the lane, riding in the middle of the lane. That was already something that was in the highway code. It is something that cycle trainers, including on bikeability, bikeability, have taught for decades. Um, it's nothing new, but you suddenly get people like, you know, some elements of media reporting that, you know, cyclists are told to ride in the middle of the road. Those are the headlines. It wasn't, you know, cyclists can ride in the middle of the lane. It was cyclists are told to ride in the middle of the road as though it was something new, Um, which is a headline that grabs attention among people who don't ride bikes, you know, and who, who maybe choose to get around in a car. 
And they look at the headline like that and perhaps don't read the article. The funny thing was, some of the Daily Mail articles had misleading headlines. I bet but they, yeah, the facts were actually all there. <laughs> they got, they got yeah. the facts right. But the yeah. damage is done in the first bit of it. You know, the bit about um, not using the Dutch reach to open the car door could get you fined £1,000. No, you could be fined £1,000 if you open your car door and it causes a cyclist yes. to die. But even in the cases we've seen that have gone to court where a cyclist has, uh, sorry, a, a car occupant has been um, on trial for dooring in cases where a cyclist has died, we've never seen, even seen someone be fined a thousand pounds, even when found guilty. Um, so to actually imply that anyone in the car just by not using Dutch reach, could be liable for a £1,000 fine. It is so misleading. So next up from episode 17 of the podcast, where we were lucky enough to be able to speak to Chris Boardman right after he'd just become Active Travel Commissioner for England. When I heard the news, so we got the, um, the embargoed press release on Friday. Um, and yeah, I was beaming, all, literally beaming all day. Because I was just so excited about the, just the, the concept of, because we've we've obviously got people in government at the moment who are very, very kind of cycling orientated. Um, some of them are. Some of them are, yeah. Some of them are, some of them less so. But we have, but we have quite a cycling positive government at the moment. Um, but having somebody who has the kind of you know the, the public facing passion that you do, I think is going to make that alone is going to make such a massive difference. Um, so I mean. One thing you're obviously known as kind of, you know, the cycling innovator, you know, the secret squirrels, the Lotus bike, all that kind of stuff. How are you going to try and bring that level of innovation to this new role? Well, the innovation comes in other places. So it's um, innovation is just problem solving. That's all it is. I mean, uh, innovation is something you when when people put on their company strap, strap line, we're going to be innovative. I was thinking, no, 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 don't be innovative unless you absolutely have to, because innovative is risk. You know, you don't do something unless you absolutely have to. But sometimes the innovation is taking lots of things that are known and putting them together to create something new, or um, it's finding you, you, there's something blocking your way with something you want to do. So, so. You know, side roads, zebras, for example, we went, the rest of the world's doing this thing. We're not doing it. Why aren't we doing this thing? Um, and we, we sort of found out in the, in, the, in the bowels of DFT that, you know, we'll, we can't, we're not allowed. So rather than walk out and go, oh, it's not a shame. We went, okay, how do we get it done? Okay, let's create a study in Greater Manchester. Let's pay a quarter of a million pound for it and, and gather the evidence to go back. So we found a way around that problem. So that's where the innovation will come from here. It will be finding a way around a system that is built to stay the same at a time when you need to change and change quickly, which is two things that the big institutions don't like. So and that's why this organization has to be arm's length. It has to be independent because it's got to do things that it's parent company, Department for Transport, perfectly understandably and, and reasonably is not built for. So there's masses of innovation but it's just not going to take the form of carbon fibre and CNC machine parts. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's interesting that you said that because um, 
so in 2013, well, with the, the Get Britain Cycling Report in 2013 recommended appointing a national cycling champion and you were kind of in the frame, you, you know, your name was kind of in the frame then. And you said that you'd only take it if you had, um, if you could do it in your own way. So I assume from that, from what you've just said, that you do have that level of independence that you were asking for. Well, an independent body with two billion a set of uh, regulations that's already in place for the standards of infrastructure to enforce and a strategy that says you must incorporate cycling and walking into all of your bus, your train, your road schemes going forward. Um, that's about as good as it gets. It's like it's, it's exponentially more than I ever thought that we'd get to. And we did it really quickly. So whatever one's opinion is on wider politics, this government has delivered for active travel something that we've never we haven't seen in a lifetime um and it is a genuine opportunity that i would imagine is cross-party as well you know this is transcends politics i would hope you know this is health this is climate this is standard of living this is leveling up it is everything um because it's what links people together so i am uh, incredibly excited and very scared of the opportunity and the responsibility to get it right. Um, so uh, it is all consuming, as unfortunately my wife will tell you, um, <laughs> she is pretty sick of hearing about dropped curbs and, uh, and narrowing the radiuses of junctions at the moment. But it, um, it is utterly fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yeah, on Road CC, you know, we cover this kind of stuff. A lot and it is it, it does become you know even though we're kind of just reporting on it from the outside it's so interesting so interesting and yeah it, you once you kind of get into it it's one of those things where you just you can't not see it it's a bit like uh what's that film with the sunglasses where they where you see you know as soon as he puts them on he sees one thing as soon as he takes them off he sees uh, the other. as, as soon I, as you I know the film but i know the experience um, yeah and you can't unsee it. I mean, you mentioned wind tunnels um, <clears throat> and the commonality is incredible because it's all about people getting out their own way. It's not actually about rules and regulations. It's, it's, it's about human beings, uh, fear of change. And it's exactly the same stuff, fear of risk, uh, fear of losing. And how do you get people past that? Because if you ask anybody in the UK, um, would you like to see you, would you like your kids to be able to walk or ride to school? You're not going to get many people to go, no. So you go, okay, well, we all agree on the destination. So it's step one that, okay, but that's different. And what happens if you take that parking space away and this is my mortgage, this business. So what happens if it's not good? And that's the kind of stuff that's in the way. So it's incredibly similar. And what we did in a wind tunnel, interestingly, which we then replicated with councils, in Greater Manchester, and we're probably going to do nationally, is first thing we did is we, we gave the councils the pen and said, listen, if you don't want to do anything, let's not do it. Oh, but we do. Okay, where do you want to go? How would you do it? And we let them decide. In a wind tunnel, we, we didn't, we, we learned really on the hard way, I won't go into the story, but um, don't tell athletes, this is what you should do. Take them in the wind tunnel, show them the numbers, let them experiment. Then they'll ask questions about how can we get that number to go lower? And you go, well, why don't you try this? And they'll try it. And you give them a chance to experiment and own it. Ownership is key. Um, and then we, did, we just did that with councils and we'll do it again. So I'm a massive fan of trials um, for, for all of this stuff because it gives people the courage to have a go at doing something different. 
but the trials have got to be large enough and meaningful and for a long enough amount of time to prove the case. Because that's the beauty of our product. Um, if you try it, you know, if you, if you let somebody do it and try it on, they'll prefer it. Waltham Forest is the best example. 47% of people objected to Waltham Forest being pedestrianised and people protested with coffins on the shoulder saying this is the death of Waltham Forest. And they were lucky enough with Clyde Lokes to have a councillor who was strong enough to push through that. And then three years later, they did another poll. 1.7% of people would put it back. And that's, you know, that's, um, that's key, I think. There's huge amount of similarities because all of it, be it in wind tunnels or, or government schemes, it's um, it's it all comes down to people and fear of change. And so it's it's actually a very simple task wrapped up in complex stuff. And the final clip is around larger people and how the cycling industry isn't really catering for them. And this was from episode 31 of the podcast that came out last month. I just thought I'd share it with you guys again. So I bought a my, my first bike road bike I ever had, which was a Trek 1.1. Uh, I got it stolen, unfortunately, and then went on eBay, found a very similar bike and met a guy on a motorway uh, service station to buy it and um so he was he wasn't a small guy he wasn't into it but he was doing a sportive with his mates and um he'd obviously walked into a bike shop and bought a bike with a view to start road cycling and he sold it for me it was a crazy cheap price for considering and i, I just felt bad because it had it was set up so the stem was like pointing skywards and the saddle so the, the bike shop had basically tried to set this racing bike up for him, like a mountain bike. So he because he told them that he was used to riding like a chopper, basically, and it, and he was selling it because I just felt really bad. I was like, no, you you um, they just they've just sold you the wrong bike, basically, you know. Or um, and and so I I don't know. I was sort of thinking, shall shall I not buy it off him and give him some tips to make it make it more comfortable <laughs> um, for himself or maybe exchange see about exchanging it for a, yeah. a a more comfortable bike that he would have easily got round that but he didn't need a, a race bike for the sportive but he went in there and um they, they basically tried to put a square peg in a round hole for him and then he ended up selling it to me for a third of the price he bought it for, for you know and I, I love it and i've made really good use to it of it but um it's just a shame because he obviously walked into a bike shop that didn't know how to cater to what he wanted. And that's, that, that's part of the challenge. So if you bring in the e-bike element, as soon as you put a motor onto a onto a bicycle, the bicycle does not have to look like a bicycle. Mm. It's really simple. Like a, a scooter is essentially a bike. It's just redesigned. It's, it's the same. It enables you to break the rules of conventional thinking. The challenge is for the cycling industry, a bike should look like this. If yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't stand a chance. However, when you put um, a, a larger wheel format, so a, a 20 by four inch tire, the four inches wide on the road gives you amazing stability. So what it means is anyone who's got a higher center of gravity, because that's the physics that sit around this, suddenly they get no wobble and weave when they ride a bike. It feels much, much more stable. 
The motor enables you to be supported whilst you're riding, which is what a larger person needs because they're pushing a greater amount of resistance on the road if it was a skinny tire versus if it was a wider tire. Um, and, And what's happening is that you're getting the support that you need to ride. That then has massive mental, physical, health, and well-being uh, benefits. i got to tell you, the most cynical people in the cycling industry are mechanics. <laughs> oh, yeah. They are. It's just facts. Okay? As, as someone who lives with one, I can agree. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, man, no, matter what you, what you, no matter what you present, they're always going to be cynical. And that's brilliant. Disc brakes. Never is, catch on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's a mountain bike? We don't have mountains in England. Yeah. Carbon. Um, <laughs> so you put, a, you put a rider onto the Canap bike. And it's got a motorcycle-style saddle. So, number one, it's comfortable. No matter what the size of your ass is, it's comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I think an interesting – so, I mean, in terms of bikes, there's obviously – we know that there's lots of – I mean, in terms of kind of cycling in general, we know that they aren't – you know, there's not a lot of support and there's not a lot of kind of product development that goes into kind of the heavier rider. Um, but I find that especially when it comes to kind of new cycling innovations, that is kind of particularly pronounced. So when we look at things like deep rim wheels, when we look at things like uh, new carbon frames, that kind of thing, even like for me, so a bit of an admission over lockdown, I uh, couldn't really do much exercise and had my first child. So naturally, I put on quite a lot of weight. So that meant that... You sound, like you sound like you had the, the child, the way you put it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, to, to be honest, by, by, by about month three, it looked like I had. Um, but it was, uh, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I put on, I think I put on about 12 kilos in total. So I was really close to, you know, the, the limits for a lot of the carbon wheels that I tend to test. And it kind of added a lot of stress to that situation because I was kind of like well these are the wheels that I'm used to using these are the these are the wheels that have been designed for the kind of riding that I do but I don't feel at, at this weight I don't feel particularly comfortable using them because when it says the weight limit it feels like oh god these things which are these, these things are going to crack under me which is not good I mean, I mean in reality that's not going to happen all it means is that you need to treat your wheels more more often and you know if you go over a bump you're more likely to bend a spokes something like that but it kind of it does feel consistently like you are an abnormality when you're using that kind when you're using that kind of equipment when you have these kind of weight limits and I mean, another interesting point, and Mildred, again, something that you, that, that you mentioned before is um, is cycling clothing. Mm. So, I mean, especially, I, I mean, this is especially true for uh, kind of female cyclists versus kind of male cyclists, because you've got this, fa- you know, you've got the famous element of you know, mammals, where you've got these middle-aged men who generally kind of squeeze themselves into lycra. But I don't think that necessarily exists as the... As a, as a thing for women at the moment so that you don't tend to have that breadth stereotype yeah you don't <laughs> have, well you don't seem to have the kind of the breadth of sizing and the breadth of fit that you tend to get with a lot of male clothing no, is, is that what you found as well absolutely I mean cy- cycling clothing is definitely not designed for curves I can tell you that and um, I think really the the crux of this whole conversation is about how we need to 
um, normalize this idea of the cyclist being of all different shapes and sizes and actually moving away from this one idea of what the cyclist looks like and the same thing about what the bike looks like. So all it's underpinning this whole conversation. And when it comes to women's clothing, I mean, in, when it comes to women's cycling in general, there's just not as much coverage for women as there are men. So we haven't even really had the time to develop these ideas of different stereotypes that you get, like the mammal, because we just haven't seen enough we've not been around enough within the within the media and, and actually in the public view um and then when you actually look at the yeah the size ranges as i said you know i'm i'm not you know in terms of um different kind of scales of of you know what you would call fatness i'm i'm large but i'm not i'm not overly large and yet i am the largest size for a huge amount of cycling brands and when i you know in my days of reviewing kit i would always be asking them for their largest sizes and sometimes it would still be a bit of a squeeze to get in and i know so many women who are much larger than me who basically have just said i can't i can't wear lycra it doesn't fit me there are some brands out there now that are producing much larger and more inclusive size ranges but a lot of them are american and not the easiest to get in the uk you know brands like machines for freedom and velocio for example they they go up to sort of 4xl and they're much easier for people to act like um, they're much better for people to fit into but actually getting hold of them in the uk is really hard um so, yeah, I, found, I, I found it really interesting, Mildred, when I reached out to the guys at um, Fat Lad at the back. Mm. Now, I only felt, again, I only found them through, through type, them, yeah. type, in, type in searches on, on Google. Um, and they're running a campaign at the moment, which is called Fat Can. Yes, I have and seen it's very like it's very, very edgy. And, mm. <laughs> um, but what they're trying to say is it's not impossible. Collective Bicycle Cover by Lacquer exists to rewrite the rules of insurance so it's something people stand with, not against. Lacquer has been voted best cycling insurance provider for the last four years running. No excess, no depreciation, no contract, no funky fine print, and a five-star rated customer service. An experience so good you might actually want to claim. So, whether it's a pothole that's buckled your wheel, some knob that nicked your bike, or an airline who's lost your gear, you can be sure Lacquer has got your back. New customers can get 30 days free bicycle insurance using the code ROADCCPOD30. Hi guys, so today we are joined by Lawrence Hunter, who is the VP of Insurance for Lacquer. Hi Lawrence. Hi there, how are you doing? Yeah, yeah not too bad, thanks. Yourself? Good, thank you very much. We were just talking beforehand about making the most of uh, this nice weather and getting out on our bikes in South London, so I'm looking forward to doing some of that this weekend. Oh yeah, yeah, same. It's uh, yeah before it really heats up over the next week. Yeah, get most of it whilst you can, definitely. Um, so Lawrence, I mean, we know that Lacquer. I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard of Lacquer by now. Any everybody who's cycling has come across it at some point. But I mean, maybe you could give us a bit more insight into how collective bicycle insurance works versus kind of the regular insurance model. Yeah, of course. Um, so maybe firstly to say that. Yeah, what we're trying to do at Lacquer is build the the world's leading green mobility insurer. Uh, clearly, bicycles are a huge part of that. That's where we started life, and and um, yeah, products for cyclists and, and and road cyclists like your users are still a, a huge uh, focus for us. And, and yeah, where a lot of our success has been made, and, and, and I'm sure will continue to come. Um, 
but yeah, of course, what's unique about LACA is, is our insurance business model. And I think the, the premise is the reason LACA exists is because we think that customers think insurance is unfair, rightly or wrongly. I think that's a perception people hold. Um, and the reason we think that they think that is because there's just inherent conflict in the old world business model. Um, and I think that exists for a couple of reasons. One is there's this sort of opaqueness in pricing. So if you go to your, your home insurer's website and uh, you put your information in, you really have no kind of transparency as to how the price that they arrive at for you is derived. Um, but then maybe more kind of painfully for customers, they pay their insurer for this service, the service of settling claims, one that they might never actually call upon, they might never actually need to make a claim, then when they do come to call upon that service, that conflict exists and that the insurer makes more money, the less of that service they provide. So me as a customer, I pay my insurer to settle claims. When I come to make a claim, I know that their business model motivates them not to settle the claim. So that's uh, why we think that perception of unfairness exists and, and what we set out to address. And the, the way we do that is we don't charge our customers up front. Uh, so you can come and take a lack of policy today. During the month, we'd settle claims for you and your fellow customers. Then at the end of the month, we tally up all of the claims that we've actually paid out and we split those fairly across our customers. So that means you know exactly why you're paying what you pay because it's directly correlated to claims costs. Um, and theoretically, if we were, if we had a month where there were no claims, we would charge our customers nothing, which we think is fair because we haven't provided our service in that case. Um, then to go at the other kind of uh, yeah, point of conflict that I mentioned in the, in the old world, we only make money by settling claims and we do that by adding a fee on top of settled claims. So for every, um, yeah, for every claim we settle out, we put a 25% fee on top, which covers our costs. Um, so really in the lack of business model, it's you and in, in, in this case are, sorry, it's you and your fellow cyclists covering the cost of each other's claims, lacquer sort of facilitating the service of settling those claims, taking a fee for doing so. Interesting. Yeah, that does sound like a kind of a fairer model than, yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about kind of, you know, car insurance in particular, which is, you know, painful, which, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I had to make a claim last year, and it was like pulling teeth. Everyone's, everyone's got a horrible insurance claim story. And that's, yeah, as I said, that's really why Lacquer exists. And one of the things we're most proud of is our claim service. If you check out our Google reviews and reviews that we post on our, our own sites. Yeah, they're almost unanimously about our claim service. That's really what matters to us. Nice. Um, so why do you, so, I mean, obviously 2022, well, pretty, pretty much post 2020 is pretty unique in terms of the, well, firstly, the business environment and secondly, you know, the kind of cost of living crisis and all this kind of stuff. So why do you think, bike insurance is so important kind of today? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think in, in insurance as an industry has traditionally been very kind of recession resilient without going too, too sort of technical on, on you. But um, the reason for that is it's downside protection. It's protection against the worst. 
Uh, and so in you know, stressed economic times, protecting yourself against the worst situation is, 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 is clearly a good thing. Someone told me the other day that uh, insurance companies are some of the oldest companies around, which kind of proves that uh, resilience that they have for the reasons I mentioned. But the only other companies that are uh, generally been around longer are breweries, right? So yeah. maybe insure your bike, give yourself peace of mind and then have a beer in, in the safe hands of two kind of uh, yeah, long-standing industries. But I think yeah, considering insurance is like a, it's a personal consideration. The way I think about it is, right, what's the impact on your life if your bike gets stolen? Are you, yeah, do you have the money in the bank that you can cover the cost of replacing your nice, your nice bike with no pain? Or are you having to cancel the family holiday to replace your, your 10K S-Works? And what's your kind of like, you know, what's your threshold for pain in that sense? Um, and yeah, if you wanted to kind of factor in your own perception of, of, of risks, you can do something like, right, look at the annual premium you're paying. Um, yeah, divided by the, 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 the cost of your bike and, and consider, right, do I think that this represents good value? I, yeah, how long do I think I need to pay this premium for before it's not good value for me? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially, I mean, I guess there's a couple of things that I think about in particular now, because not only are we, you know, not only a house household budget stretched kind of you know every budget is stretched slightly beyond what it was before regardless of whether you're kind of top of the scale or bottom of the scale but also there's a lot of people who are moving from you know where they might have considered making a trip you know in a car previously now we're seeing people choosing to cycle places because you know they don't have to you know cycling once you've bought the bike cycling is essentially free mm. so if you then remove that from, you know, if, if you suddenly have your bike nicked, for instance, and then you can't replace it, suddenly you haven't just lost out on that kind of monetary value of your bike, but you've also lost out on that, you know, your ability to get somewhere essentially free. Yeah, yeah. it's like a, you know, like a, a social impact as, as well as a financial one, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's quite an interesting time, and especially when we're seeing you know, the the impetus from, well, I guess what you would now call the previous government um, in terms of kind of walking and cycling and all that kind of stuff. You know, it, I think that that's only going to increase over time is that that, you know, that the impact is going to be felt more profoundly than before, because more people are going to be using active travel as a means of transport, well, as, as their kind of main means of transport. Yeah, and then, yeah, long may it continue. We, we have our European office in, in Amsterdam, and I spent quite a bit of time there. And yeah, clearly, the Dutch, the Danish are always held out as shining examples of the, the, the way to get around cities using bikes and, and green transport. And yeah, you mentioned we both live in London. London's come a pretty long way, but a long way to go still. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I found that when I was cycling up the Old Kent Road the other day. Lots yeah, of very, yeah, lots of very angry cab drivers. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, obviously working in the industry, you must get some really interesting kind of insights into what's currently happening, mm. you know, just in it kind of in the market in general and also across, you know, cycling in general. So, I mean, what, what kind of trends are you guys seeing at the moment? Um, 
yeah, clearly that the, this this whole kind of new burgeoning segment of uh, people jumping on bikes enabled by things like e-bikes. Um, I'd say that's really accelerated in in the last couple of years. Uh, people use different people using bikes for new kind of um, in new ways. Uh, and I think e-bikes are driving a lot of that. I mentioned we've got an operation in Europe as well. Uh, the Netherlands and Germany, for example, are even further ahead than, than, than we are here in the UK on the, the adoption of e-bikes. And I think the UK will come up in behind that. Um, you know, you, you go around city centres and you see far more deliveries being made on cargo bikes. You see families riding around on cargo bikes with kids in the front. So it's no longer just... Uh, people like you and I putting their lycra on to, to go out on a Saturday or to get to work. Uh, yeah, it's a much more accessible uh, means of transport now. And, and um, yeah, it's got a lot of strong tailwinds behind it with, with government interventions as well. Nice. Um, so one of the things that we're seeing, well, one of the things that we're, we're getting kind of lots of reports of that we're reporting a lot on the site is kind of, bike jackings and people's bikes getting stolen whilst they're on them um they're obviously very kind of shocking stories and things like that i mean from um from from kind of from lacquer's perspective do you guys have any advice about what people should do kind of you know before during and after kind of you know if they are involved in a bike jacking situation yeah. i mean look, look, i saw the article published on road cc highlighting this just the other day and sadly I've got to say it's a trend we've seen as well uh, we've had a number of claims for, 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 for the types of situations you described and really distressing and horrible uh, to see when you had the, the much publicised incidents around Richmond Park uh, back in the, the, the sort of autumn or so but that that's not gone away, we've seen a few similar claims recently um, in terms of advice I don't, I don't know if i'm kind of like best place to tell people to how to act in a in in that sort of situation but what i do know is if you're insured with lacquer or, or probably uh, with others as well if, if you give up your bike report it to the police you'll be in good hands having your your claims settled so it's probably not worth uh resisting let's say yeah yeah i'd say that that's generally I would say pretty much regardless of, mm. yeah, even though it's probably best to be insured with lacquer, I'd say that even if you are, uh, if you're not, it's probably a better idea to give your bike up than, uh, yeah, than getting stabbed, I'd say. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Our, our customers love their bikes, though. I've got to say some, um, we've had people submit claims from the back of ambulances that crashed the bike, they've broken their collarbone, but it's most important to them <laughs> not to get their collarbone fixed and get to the hospital. They want to make sure their bike's going to be okay, so... Yeah, I think cyclists are crazy, but uh, yeah, holding on to your bike in that situation almost certainly not worth it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, a hundred percent agree with that one. Um, so, I mean, Lacquer is is doing really well at the moment, and we've seen that Porsche has recently invested. Um, what do you think that that kind of investment means for firstly the future of cycling? Because obviously, it's really interesting that we've got um, a car company, well, essentially, you know, a broad car company investing in essentially kind of, you know, the, you know, a bike insurer and e-mobility insurer. Um, and what does it also mean for, um, yeah, so cycling in general, and also what does it mean for, for lacquer kind of moving forward as well? Yeah, that's a really 
great to have uh, the support of, of, of Porsche, clearly a, a famous name uh, and a famous name in an industry that yeah might traditionally have almost been opposed to cycling, right? The, the, the dirty car versus the, 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 the clean green bike. Um, but I think that Porsche's investment in, in us and um, yeah, other trends you see in the market are, are actually bringing those two industries much closer together. There's now this kind of like Venn diagram in the middle where uh, with the development of, yeah, we mentioned e-bikes before and other kind of light electric vehicles, let's say that there's this crossover between the cycling industry and traditional bike manufacturers and people like Porsche you know, going across the spectrum uh, towards a, a sort of greener forms of transport. Uh, and that's super interesting, right? It's, it's I'm sure, going to be challenging for bike manufacturers um, to make sure they maintain their foothold in that kind of new space. Uh, someone like Porsche has their own uh, e-bike brand, which is yeah, very high-end e-bike, very nice e-bike. But, of course, they're using that to develop technology that can be used in other bikes as well. And, and you know, looking at even other industries, the, the bikes on your e-bike aren't made, sorry, the batteries on your e-bike aren't made by bike manufacturers. They're made by traditional sort of, um, yeah, industrial production of batteries, Bosch, et cetera. So super interesting convergence of those two uh, previously kind of separate industries. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Porsche are a particularly interesting one because I I would argue they've made the best electric car so mm. far i'd say that the take what is it called the taken cross turismo is yeah prob i'd say probably my favorite car on the road at the moment you're giving yourself away as a petrol head you couldn't have done that on a cycling podcast <laughs> okay so, so 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 that's maybe further evidence of those two kind of yeah as i said previously separate industries kind of crossing over yeah, very true. Although, in my defence, it is an electric car, so yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Lacquers, I mean, you you guys are kind of, you know, you said you started off in, in the cycling industry and then you're kind of moving, well, you're definitely moving now across kind of a wider spectrum of e-mobility kind of transport options. Um, kind of where do you see that going? Because one thing that is really interesting in that space is this, especially when I think about kind of scoop, like e-scooters, um, kind of e-skateboards, that kind of thing. Where do you see that going in terms of insurance? Do you think that we are likely to see those things, you know, those kind of modes of transport requiring insurance? Because there, there is that extra level of danger to them because they're not, entire, because they're not entirely self-propelled. Yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a fast moving area um, as well. It's it's our expectation that in the UK and Europe in the coming years there will be new uh, vehicle categories created that exist between cars and everything else, which which of course includes bikes. Uh, so we fully expect that there'll be new categories of vehicle created. Uh, and we expect that some of those categories will have compulsory insurance requirements, uh, kind of maybe like a lighter version of what's required for uh, for motor insurance, so a need to have public liability, third-party liability insurance, and some kind of qualifying factors for the, the rider or the driver. 
uh, of being a certain age, holding a license, registration, etc. Mm. Now, what I would say is, I don't expect that we're going to get to a situation where you or I have to have insurance to go out on our road bikes. I don't think there's going to be backfilling of existing bicycle categories going into these new categories. Uh, but I think things like yeah, let's call them light electric vehicles. You see some bikes out on the road doing commercial deliveries that are categorized as bikes at the moment, but they look more like milk floats. And, and mm. those are the sort of things that uh, I think might be in scope for, for compulsory insurance. So we don't have to worry about our road bikes, but if you're riding a heavy cargo bike or, or using a light electric vehicle uh, for commercial deliveries or something like that, then I think that's going yeah, to change in the coming years. Yeah, I think it's an it's an interesting one it's because I so I also um, so as well as presenting the podcast, uh, I also review for Road CC and e bike tips as well, which is Road CC's e bike partner. Well, no, I mean same same company. Um, but one of the really interesting things about that is so obviously I get kind of a lot of the press releases around kind of new bikes and things, and especially so Van Moof have recently announced. Well, a, few, a couple of months ago, they they announced their their kind of new concept bike, which you know says, oh, it can reach speeds of up to I can't remember what it was, but it was well beyond yeah. the, the current limit that we've got. I mean, I wonder if we might end up in a situation where we have kind of you know this categorized element, as you said, where we have you know e bikes that are limited to. Well, I mean, it's currently what eighteen miles an hour, I think. Yeah, twenty five k into. 25k now and 250 watts of power. I think. Yeah, it's it's and but and I wonder if there'll be everything, but anything kind of below that threshold will be, you know, you you can use it without insurance, and then anything above potentially, you know, may, maybe you you know you you'll need to have a license and insurance to use that. Because I mean, I think that could potentially get around some of the challenges that we currently have, which are you know we're seeing not just in the not just in e-bikes but in bikes in general where we've got these rules that are kind of hampering innovation so you know for instance we were talking on the pod last week about um how the reason that we're seeing this kind of you know merging together of aero bikes and lightweight bikes isn't necessarily because you know we're making aero bikes really really light it's because you know we can make them light enough to you know hit the uci weight limit but we can't go you know, we can't go any lower than that because of the limit, not because yeah, we yeah. couldn't we couldn't make lights, you know, bikes that are half the weight of what they are at the moment. Um, so I wonder if it's kind of going to be the same thing where, you know, we don't want to make, we want to make sure that we don't <clears throat> limit the kind of innovation that e-bikes could have just by having these laws around, you know, and then potentially insurance could mitigate a lot of the challenges that that would bring. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. It's my... Yeah, personal expectation. I don't know for certain. It's my personal expectation that the the current kind of categories of e bike won't be touched in terms of uh, yeah, they're not going to backfill a need to have insurance on an e bike that falls within the current categorization. But something like the the new super powered Van Move and, and others similar. I think yeah, those are those are the kind of things that are going to be getting the attention. Mm, definitely. Um, so. <clears throat> I mean, I was going to ask you about how Lacquer has managed to disrupt the insurance industry, but it seems like you you answered that in the first question, really, didn't you? Uh, but yeah, to, 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 to describe our model, um, yeah, it's unique. 
Uh, I would say that we've disrupted the, the bicycle insurance industry in the UK and Europe. I'd say we're doing the same in mobility. Um, yeah, but a long way to go. I, I, we've, we've got grand ambitions, of course. And uh, as I said, we are unique at the moment, but it would almost be flattering if we got to the point where someone copied our model because that to me would show okay really people are buying into this is the way that insurance should be done not the way uh that it has been done in the past with with all of the negative um effects that we talked about right at the beginning yeah definitely um so i mean my final question is that so with i mean when i think of what the way we used to look at bicycle insurance was that most people would tend to either assume or rely on their home insurance covering their bikes, kind of, you know, whether it's stolen or damaged, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, is that actually the case that people can do that? Or is are there, what are the kind of disadvantages of taking that approach? Yeah, the, 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 there's no one size fits all. There's no uniform kind of approach that, that home insurers all take. So that the devil's in the detail, of course. Um, and yeah, in, in some cases, home insurance might be suitable for people if they, um, yeah, it, it, it might be suitable for some people, for, for your listeners that are, I expect down the spectrum of, uh, you know, like wearing super enthusiastic couple of bikes, they're, they're the pride and joy sort of thing. Then, then the further down that end of the scale you are, I think the less, appropriate home insurances we've seen some crazy limitations on on home insurance cover for example only covering the bike when it's in a 10k radius of your house not providing appropriate cover for any racing or events or travel the types of things your listeners might be might be doing um and then from the kind of technical insurance aspects you want to look at things like is the excess on my house insurance really eating up a lot of the value uh, of the cover I might be getting. Uh, Lacquer has no excess, by the way, so cover claims from the ground up, unlike uh, will be the case in home insurance. And then really, when it comes down to the the service, right, when you're submitting a claim for your your 10 grand S-works, do you want to be dealing with the, the company that, before you picked up the phone to them, was selling claims for dishwashers and don't know their carbon wheels from their, uh, from their dishwasher? Or do you want to be dealing with experts who talk your language, who really know, you know, they know the pain. Our, our, our claims handlers are all cyclists themselves and, and they know the pain of uh, being without your bike for, for even a week. So, um, yeah, there's a service element to it. And then when, when it comes to price, uh, do you want claims for your bike on your home insurance to be impacting your renewal terms? Because I guarantee they will. Um, and, yeah, Therefore, to have those two aspects separated for, 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 for people at the sort of enthusiast end of the spectrum makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, thanks, Lawrence. Thanks very much. Cheers. Hi, guys. Me again. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, it was really interesting to do it actually because it gives you a, an opportunity to look back at everything that we've done this season and I don't want to seem too navel gazily but I'm really proud with what we've done 
I'm really proud with the, the team here and what we've already managed to achieve. Um, and yeah, particularly thanks to Laka who basically keep the lights on. Uh, so yeah, without them, this podcast wouldn't exist. So we really appreciate their support and everything that they've done for us as well, especially with the providing of experts. That's been particularly useful, especially around the, uh, well, with Lawrence and around the Heathrow baggage stuff as well. Um, so we've had a couple of emails uh ned got in touch with us and he rightly points out the audaxes are not races and not technically and not not technically races either they are no competitor there are no competitors unless you were talking about being in competition with oneself success is to finish the audacious task and make the controls between the generous time limits both maximum and minimum ned i'm incredibly sorry for the offense um Yes, this was actually flagged to me in um, a few times by a few people. So, yes, this is my fault. I apologise. We also got a really lovely message from Ted. So thanks for sending this in, Ted. So probably an age thing, but after all after all these of after I seem after all these years of following you, I've just discovered your podcast and it's great. Shap's proposals are idiotic and will never come in. Your standardisation episode was brilliant. I had never thought about how limiting bike sizes are. I own a made-to-measure Torah, and even that I have had to adjust. With regards to clothing, it's a nightmare, particularly in the summer, because I cannot hide my rotund shape so easily. Prepared to pay a decent price for a top, it's still a nightmare getting a large enough size, as my stomach size is that of someone a foot taller. I just wonder how many more people would take up cycling if you could get larger sizes more easily. Looking forward to catching up on the episodes I've missed. Regards, Ted. Thanks for that, Ted. That really made my day. Um hearing hearing that message um so yeah i hope that you guys all appreciate uh, the podcast we really love putting it on for you um and yeah we will be returning as i said mid, mid to late september we've got loads of stuff planned we've we're gonna do some amazing stuff uh, with the time that we've got just to put things together come up with some new ideas and yeah i really hope that you guys have enjoyed this season Really looking forward to talking to you guys next season. And yeah, until then, cycle safe. Bye.